Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. Thank you so much for the privilege of being with you once again. It's always a joy to be here and engage in worship with you. And thank you so much indeed for your prayers the last 18 months or so since we've been down the road, just down there in Druin, uh, just uh, seeking to uh, help and encourage the people of God there as they were waiting upon God for a new pastor and delighted that uh, uh, that new pastor has been provided and was beginning his ministry this morning uh, down in that congregation. So thank you for your prayers for Christine and for myself as we have been there. And I know that uh, you have been engaged in praying that God would provide uh, an under-shepherd for that congregation. It's a delight to be with you on this uh, Father's Day, a day associated with family gatherings, with celebration, with thanksgiving, but also mindful of the fact that it's also a day for some that is marked by sorrow and sadness. I found it interesting that in reading Sinclair Ferguson's book, in Christ alone, that he makes reference to the fact that Sunday, every Sunday, is indeed Father's Day. That is, it is the Father's Day. For it is the day in which we, the family of God, gather together to celebrate Him, to give thanks to our Heavenly Father, and so as well we come to rejoice, but also, as we have done together this morning, we come with sorrow and with sadness because of the sin that still dwells in our hearts and mars our life. So in that sense, I welcome you to this Father's Day as we worship Him. During the past week, I had the responsibility of addressing a group of men on the subject of prayer. I've always hesitated to speak about that subject unless it comes up in a portion of Scripture I've been working through, because who of us really is sufficient to speak on such a holy topic. Prayer is not simple. It's a discipline. It is a delight. But very much a mark of our dependency upon God. And one of the points that I brought out to these brothers was simply this, the the providence of God and prayer. That is, that that God our Father so arranges our circumstances at times, so arranges our situations at times, that we are driven to pray. Someone put it in this form, 
when all things seem against us to drive us to despair, we know one gate is open, one ear will hear our prayer. Now, I am sure that for most of us, if not all of us, we have found that families are a great boon to our prayer life. Be it sickness, accident, unemployment, financial pressure, or future plans, when those things touch a family member, our prayer time is revived and our hearts are deeply impacted. And why is that so? Well, surely the answer is simple. We're driven to prayer at such times for such people because we love them. They are our family members. Whether they be our aged parents, whether they be our young children, whether they be our teenagers, whether they be young marrieds, whatever the category, they are precious to us. And therefore, it is not wearisome for us to call upon God for them. And so it was, when sickness struck that home in Bethany, the sisters called for Jesus, declaring, and I'm quoting from John 11 and verse 3, and if you have a copy of Scriptures with you this morning, come to, with me to that 11th chapter. A chapter well known by us, I'm sure. But in John 11, verse 3, we read these simple yet staggering words, Lord, the one you love is sick. Lord, the one you love is sick. And like so many after them, these, these sisters were to learn more about Jesus in those days of distress than they would have dreamed. This morning I want to take you to one of those great I am sayings of Jesus. The one that we find in this 11th chapter, where Jesus says in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. And I want you to notice three things here. A powerful truth that examines faith. And a profound truth that encourages hope. And a pastoral truth that expresses love. First of all, a profound truth that examines faith. And I get that from verses 23 through 27. The first time I experienced it, I was an 18-year-old. 
My father, who was only 55 years of age, had been admitted to the Alfred Hospital with a tumor on the brain. They said the operation was a success, but he died within a week. And since that time, like many of you, grief has been too close a companion too many times. And grief comes to us wearing many guises. Grief can come to us through, yes, loss of a loved one. It can also come to us through loss of health. It may come to us through loss of employment, through loss of finances. It comes to us in different ways and it produces a shock. It produces guilt. It can create hostility within us. It can lead us to a point of denial and certainly a very deep sense of distress and tears. An almost overwhelming sense of irretrievable loss and desolation. And you see it here with these two sisters, Mary and Martha. The scene of their weeping is brought out for us in verse 33. A sense of their grief is portrayed in verse 32. Sorrow now fills their heart and their home because Lazarus, their brother, has died. And yet it is within that awful context because, beloved, death is awful. We hear this claim and this confession of Jesus. I am the resurrection and the life. And what is Jesus claiming here? A power that is more powerful than death. Jesus is claiming to possess in his person the power of resurrection and the power to grant life. Not somewhere in the future, the orthodox belief confessed by Martha in verse 24, but a reality for the present, for the here and for the now. And Jesus' emphasis is more on the the life than on resurrection. For his power not only extends to an event, resurrection, but to an eternal existence, life. What is Jesus declaring and scriptures affirming? Death is not the end. Yes, it is the close of a period of existence. A chapter of life is finished. But it's not the whole story. Death does not mean 
the end. The Scriptures do not teach annihilation. No, no, no. Though death holds sway, it does not hold sway absolutely. And the proof of that is seen here in the raising of Lazarus and ultimately the historical, physical resurrection of Jesus Christ himself. Here is the, the, the core hope of the Christian faith. Jesus declares himself to be the resurrection and the life. And he displays it personally in his own resurrection. And that we shall partake of that resurrection in the future. I am the resurrection and the life, Jesus said. But then amidst these powerful words, this powerful truth, Jesus then goes on and asks a question. He comes to examine your faith and my faith this morning by saying to us, and you get it in verse 26. He says to Martha, Do you believe this? I am the resurrection and the life. Do you really, honestly, truthfully, fully believe this? That is, do you believe that everyone who lives and believes in me, says Christ, will never die that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord and at the Lord's return our very bodies will live again that death was defeated by the very death of Christ himself Martha confessed her faith. She declares him to be the Lord and Messiah. But I wonder about you this morning. How vital is this truth to us this morning? Because listen to the words of the Apostle Paul. I'm going to Romans chapter 10 and verses 8 and 9. The apostle writes, this is the message of faith we proclaim. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. What do true believers believe? They believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be. And that when we gather together to worship, we're not thinking upon or worshiping a dead martyr, but a living, ruling, and soon returning Savior. 
I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? A profound truth that examines fear. But then let me move on and add to that. For what we find here is a profound truth that encourages hope. You see, what lesson is here for us? What does this, this story, this, this event recorded here in John 11, what does this history teach us? Well, it's about escaping the power of death and escape for all those who trust in Jesus Christ. In other words, it's, it's about a great privilege. The privilege of having a living Savior who is also a loving friend. For if you go back to verse 3, we read that the message had come, Lord, the one you love, the one you love is sick. And if you go on to the fifth verse, we read, Now Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus. And then that kindly word in verse 11 our friend, Lazarus, has fallen asleep. In other words, when we look at Jesus here, and we read these delightful, endearing terms, we recognize that Jesus is one who is able to sympathize with our weakness. Because he knows the awful reality and the terrible rapture, or rupture rather, of death. He felt what sorrow feels like. His own heart was moved. And so he wept. And the, the separation caused by sin within that family, the disruption that came to that family, the distress that came to that family, moved him to mourn deeply, almost a verge of anger at what sin does. And so he knows what we feel when at times we have to stand in that hospital ward and learn the sad news of a loved one. And he knows how we feel when we stand at the side of that open grave. In that hour of distress, in those days of loneliness, and amidst our confusion and emptiness, He comes to us full of love, and full of tenderness, and He reminds us, I am the resurrection and 
the life. That it is Christ who gives life. For no one has ever come back from the dead except though Jesus brought back and then Christ Jesus himself, the firstfruits of those that sleep. No mere human being has ever brought himself or herself back from the dead. No, no, no. Only Christ can do that. And he did that here with Lazarus. Now Lazarus died again at some future time. But his death and burial notwithstanding, he never died in that absolute sense. He obtained by faith in Jesus eternal life, a condition of existence that cannot be troubled by physical death. I wonder if you've ever stopped when you've been reading this portion. I wonder if you've ever stopped and thought, what was Lazarus' experience in the second time he faced death? Imagine Lazarus on his second deathbed. How did he feel then? Allow me to paraphrase some words of a dear friend of mine, Rob Rayburn. Here is Lazarus speaking to his sisters once again. I'm, I'm sorry to leave you again, my dear sisters. I am really sorry. I love you. But I hope that you will understand my excitement, the prospect of taking the unbelievably glorious trip a second time. If you had been where I once was, you would understand why I'm in a hurry to get going. I'm in a hurry to get going. Such, my friends, is the privilege afforded us by the lover of our souls. A great privilege that rests upon great promises. I want you to link three verses with me. The first is Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessings in the heavenlies in Christ. It's referring to something in the past, past tense. And then 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. He's speaking now of something in the present tense. God is for us now a Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. And then 1 Peter chapter 1 and verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. And that's all future tense. 
So what is it that we now possess because of the resurrection of Christ Jesus? Well, we possess a living hope. Paul calls it in Titus a blessed hope. A hope that rests on the very person of Jesus, who in himself is the great I am, a hope that rests on the power of Jesus, that power which was displayed in bringing Lazarus back to life again, and a hope that rests on the promise of Jesus. I am the resurrection and the life. And the one who believes in me, even though he dies, he will live. And a hope that brings forth praise to our Lord. Because did you notice in those three verses that we link together, they all begin with praise to our God. They all begin with that word, blessed. The expression of our gratitude. The expression of our humility and our satisfaction. Blessed, blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. But let me step back a moment. For I think there's a wider application that can be made from this I am saying of Jesus and the note of hope. Because for today, the issue that confronts you and that concerns you may not be that of death. Maybe you're facing a family crisis. Maybe you're facing a financial crisis. Maybe you're facing a personal crisis. You face an an obstacle that you, you, you just can't see any way around or over. A, a circumstance, a condition, a situation that's it's just keeping you awake at night. Maybe it's a relationship that's, that's troubling you or a guilt that's eating away at you. Whatever it is, as far as your situation is concerned and where you're sitting this morning, as you look, your situation seems hopeless. You can't see any remedy. You can't see any light at the end of the tunnel. It doesn't seem to be any way of escape. It's, it, it, it's, it's all doom and gloom, and death is written all over it. And so you're here worshiping, but you're troubled in heart, anxious in mind, cast down or feeling let down by others. My dear, dear friend, listen again to Jesus. I am 
I am the resurrection and the life. So I say to you this morning, look up. Lift up your eyes and look unto Jesus. You see, what, what do you do when darkness descends and every hope seems dashed? You cling to the promises of God. For the promises and purposes of God never fail. Let me illustrate. I'm thinking of some verses and a picture that is painted for us in 2 Kings chapter 11. In 2 Kings chapter 11, the seed of David has already been severely decimated. It was Athaliah's hour of power. We read in the first verse that she rose up and destroyed all of the royal seed. But in this darkness, in what seems to be absolute disaster, God always has a faithful servant. Her name is Jehoshaphat. We really don't know anything about her. An unknown, just a name. But somehow in this emergency, she hides baby Joash in the Lord's temple for six years. And then this little one is brought out and crowned king. So what's the significance of that? Of that event, of that story, of that point in history? Just this, my friends. The whole drama of redemption now hung in the hands of this one unknown servant called Jehoshaphat. The promise that God gave to the servant in Genesis 3.15. The promise of God to Abraham in Genesis 12. To Isaac and to Jacob. The covenant with David. The eternal purposes of God. Now all rest with this one unknown lass. As one put it, a commentator put it, without Jehoshaphat, there wouldn't have been any Christmas. How significant is this action? Without this unknown servant, this, this point, this pinnacle of time in history, there would have been no salvation. All of history had moved to this one point, pinpoint, in this person. Joash, hiding for six years. Athaliah, ruling over the land. The visible reign of the illegitimate kingdom and the secret 
existence of the true king. And the lesson is this, my friends. Don't believe all that you see and hear in this world. For there is a vast difference between what is apparent and what is actually the case. What gives us hope, despite all report, is this. We believe the promises of God. We believe those words that were read to us early in the service from the second Sam. The one who sits enthroned in the heavens laughs and speaks. I have set my king on Zion, my holy mountain. So you better kiss the sun, lest he be angry with you. In the words of Dale Ralph Davies, Knowing there is a legitimate king who secretly reigns keeps you from despair while the pretenders carry on. My friend, you look at this world in which we now live, but don't be driven to despair. Be driven to the promises of God to know I am the resurrection and the life. God's promises and purposes do not fail. Here in our story, Martha looked at the obvious. Martha looked at the apparent. Martha looked at the problem. Lord, there's already stench because he's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Hold on to the promise. Martha, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And that's what this story is all about. That's what this incident is all about. That's what this episode is all about. The praise of God, the glory of God, the honor of God, the pleasure of God. For it's by leaning on His promises that we bring pleasure and glory to our God. The words of the 147th Psalm, The Lord's pleasure is not in the strength of the horse, nor His delight in the legs of the warrior. The Lord delights in those who fear Him and who put their hope in His unfailing love. A love declared in His precepts and promises and displayed in His passion. So my dear Christian brother and sister, be alert to God's promises when you read His Word. And be armed with His promises as you walk through this world and be amazed at His promises as you bow down in worship. Jesus said to Martha, Did I not tell you the promise of His Word. That if you believed the product of His Word, you would see the glory of God, the power of His Word. 
the glory of God. That's the goal of our grief. The end of our experience. The fruit of our fear. A powerful truth that examines faith. A profound truth that encourages hope. And then finally, a pastoral truth that expresses love. The text expresses our love for this family. It's acknowledged in verse 3. It's announced in verse 5. It's appreciated in verse 36. They were the beloved of the Lord. And so strange as it may seem to us and appear to us, our Lord's timing here endorsed his love. I'm thinking of what you find in verses 5 and 6. These strange words to our ears. Jesus stayed two more days. Then he went to the sisters. What are we to make of this delay? If he loved them, why didn't he rush there? Where didn't he go there immediately to help? Two things stand out, and then I'm finished. The first is this. His delay, he delayed because of his love for them. You know, our idea of love is often colored by our culture and by our media. But biblically, God disciplines those he loves. Christians are not immune to what's around them. Faith does not shield us from all disasters. Again, to quote the commentator speaking about King Hezekiah, who was in that, that, that line with David of one who pleased God. The commentator says, you can cling to the Lord as Hezekiah did, but the Assyrians still come. You can trust in God today, but you may be confronted by a great enemy tomorrow. Because you see, my friends, faith is not just the power of positive thinking. Faith is not something magical. God's love for us does not mean a trouble-free trip through life. Nor, on the other hand, does toil and trouble and tears indicate that God does not love you. The wonderful words that we sometimes sing of William Cooper, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. He loves us. Because think redemptively. He saves us just as I am. But he will not leave me just as I am. No, no, no. Jesus stayed behind because the, the sister's sadness and sorrow would be a means of bringing them 
to a greater happiness, to having a greater hope, and having a richer faith. You see, in reality, Jesus didn't even have to go to Bethlehem, or to Bethany rather. Jesus could have stayed where he was and just spoke the word. Speak the word. That's all you'd need to do. And Lazarus could have been made whole. But he, he, he held back. He delayed because he wanted the sisters to grow in grace and in faith. And furthermore, the fact that the sickness of Lazarus made the sisters seek for Jesus surely teaches us that whatever drives us to him Whatever brings us nearer to him is a blessing in disguise. And aren't we thankful for that long delay? For how blessed it is, as I've already indicated, to stand beside the grave of a loved one and remember these words that Jesus spoke when he did come. I am the resurrection and the life. The hope they bring because he delayed, because of his love for the family, because there was a definite purpose in his delay and in their grief. His love for the family, and he delayed because of his love for his father. His love for his father. The ultimate goal of Lazarus' sickness was what? The glory of God. Here providentially was an opportunity for the display of the majesty and the might and the mercy of the Lord. Because remember what Jesus said to Martha? If you believed, you would see the glory of of God. And how did the very story begin? The sickness will not end in death, but it is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And so it is for us. God's seeming delays in answering our call are designed by His love for nothing but the purest and simplest of profound transparent love sways Him in everything that He does every day. And He delays always to accomplish His great purpose which is our good and also his glory. And so how do we glorify God? By believing in him. By believing him. By trusting in his word. By holding on to the fact that all things, all things, all things do work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. 
that He says to us this morning, I am for you. I am the resurrection and the life. And He says that even though surrounded by death and darkness, despite everything, despite what confronts us and what challenges us today, He says to us today, do you believe that I am the resurrection and the life? Do you believe this? What's the point of the story? Why is John 11 in the gospel? So that we might believe. And so that we might keep on believing. No matter the circumstances no matter the problem, no matter the condition, no matter the pain, no matter the loneliness, no matter the hurt, no matter the sorrow, no matter how dark the night, John's purpose in writing and Jesus, I am saying, is recorded so that we may learn to walk by faith and not by sight. For without faith, we cannot please God. I am the resurrection and the life. So now, facing what you have to face, knowing what you know, when you go out of here, do you really believe it? Do you really believe Jesus is who he said he was? Let's pray together. Father, write your word upon our hearts that we may not sin against you with unbelief, that though we face pain and sorrow and heaviness of heart, anxiety of mind, troubled, we may yet believe that though death may be written all over our situation, you are the resurrection and the life. That you are sufficient. That you are able. And even though it, we've been asking you to deliver us for some time to know that your delays are not because you're indifferent to us but rather you have a glorious purpose for us to instruct us and teach us to walk humbly before you and trust in you that you may be glorified in and through us and we ask it all in the Savior's name Amen.